Well, good morning, GBC. For hey, very nice. They obviously like me. <laughs> Sorry, Joel. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah this morning, so if you go to Matthew and go two books into the Old Testament, you'll find Zechariah waiting there for you. And while you are getting settled into that, uh, just as way of introduction for those that don't know me, I'm, my name is Todd Musser. I'm from uh, Community Bible Church in Reno, and I'm uh, now permanently connected to the Rosario clan, for good or bad, because <laughs> our two type A firstborn children married each other. Yes, but they are now bringing grandchildren, so that's a good thing. (laughs) So the saints at Community Bible Church greet you. Uh, We are this morning going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, and with the intent at looking at the wonder of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And as we get into this passage, just as a high flyover of the book of Zechariah, timeline is about 521 B.C., And like Haggai, uh, Zechariah is a book that is driven at spurring on the Israelites to get back to the task of building the temple, which they had neglected and started to fall away from. And this message in Zechariah, it holds a tension between the sovereignty of God in all things, specifically salvation in this passage, and that tension with the responsibility of man. So we're going to look first at just the wonder of God's sovereignty, and then we're going to move into man's responsibility. And I'm going to read this passage, and before I read it, I want you to draw your mind and your heart and your attention to words that, draw, that communicate coverings. So just in this passage, as in coverings, we're going to see clothed, remove, put on, garments, taken away, turbans, being under, and then the branch. And these words of coverings ultimately are going to draw us into the ultimate covering which we have, which is the righteousness of Christ laid upon our lives. And we think about this role of high priest. God committed a large portion of scripture to this very subject, all the way from Genesis, echoing all the way through to the book of Revelation. And for most of us, we might be in a context where a a role of a high priest in our life really has nothing that we can connect with. But as we work through this, we're going to see how critical this is to our faith and to our thinking. And one of the things that's helpful for me is not necessarily to ask who, what a high, or I'm sorry, not necessarily to think about the role of high priest, but what does the high priest do? What specifically Jesus as our high priest, what is it that he is doing? And when we have that kind of understanding, we begin to see Jesus for the wonder of who he is. You know, from Ephesians chapter 3, we see his width and his length and his height and his depth of the love that he has for his people. And when we understand that, we now have an appreciation and a warming in our hearts and an engaging of our minds on the glory of who he is. So let's read this passage, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, 
standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to you in weakness. We come this morning, Lord, having no capacity within ourselves to do the wonder of applying your word to our hearts. So we pray this morning that you would truly invest yourself and make your word living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierce right into the bone and marrow of our spiritual lives. Lord, I pray through the prophet Zechariah, you would be so gracious as to open up our minds and our hearts into the wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his completed work. We thank you, Lord, that he is beyond anything that we can comprehend. And he is so glorious that we will spend eternity in heaven singing him praise and being wholly consumed by him alone. And we will never ever look for something else to do. Father, we thank you that Jesus ultimately will be our complete satisfaction. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So in your worship guide, you'll see, and I'm going to give away all three words right out of the gate. So if you're looking to fill it in, you know, you're done at like 1030. <laughs> this morning, we're going to look at the unbelievable reality of what we're unpacking as Jesus is our high priest. And when you hear that word unbelievable, I want you to use this definition. Something that is extraordinary. Something that is so great and so extreme, it is difficult to believe. And it's the same thing we see with the disciples in Mark chapter 16 when Jesus returned and he was appearing to them in another form and he was walking with them in the country and they went back and they told the other disciples and the other disciples did not believe them. They were astounded. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, why are they still disbelieving? 
And this, this struggle that we have as Christians here in this world waiting to go home is that the truth of the gospel is unbelievable. It's extraordinary. It has a capacity to be so extreme that we get slivers of getting our head around it and our heart around it, and then we lose it because, you know, we're hungry. Or we get distracted by any other thing. But in this picture, the first thing we want to look at in this passage is this unbelievable ruling. So look at your passage there in verses 1 through 3. And we don't need to leap super far on this one to have an illustration that sticks because this opens as a courtroom setting. And in this courtroom setting, we have Joshua as the accused. And we have Satan as the prosecuting attorney, the accuser. And he's ready to lay out his charges of Joshua's guilt. Court is called to order, and both Joshua and Satan are standing before the Lord. And the Lord is the judge, and we also see that there's the angel of the Lord, which we'll see that's our Savior Jesus as we unpack this. And he is the defense attorney. And we can see that Joshua's case is very weak. Just look at your text and notice how he's clothed for his day in court. Filthy garments, which we'll unpack in a minute. So if Joshua's case is very weak, that means that Satan has a degree of confidence as he enters into this court case. That he has a shot at winning. But look at this unbelievable ruling before satan can open his mouth before joshua can even enter his plea the judge rules from the chair and look what he says in verse two the lord rebuke you there's three things in this that are striking the first one is that satan is disbarred This word rebuke, it's very strong, and he uses it twice. It's a direct and a pointed reprimand or punishment. It's a public dressing down. It's the judge making a ruling from his chair that Satan has no voice. He's cut off before he can even speak. And look at the next thing. The accused is wearing the best he has to offer. And in this passage, Joshua is the high priest. He's the one that has the most potential to represent man in an honoring way. And yet, look how he's clothed. He's dressed in filthy garments. And in that state, look at your Bibles, the Lord chooses him in his filthy garments. And we see the Lord working here like the Lord always works. His love for us is defined by action. God sent his only son. And so when he engages right here with Joshua, he's engaging with action. And the third thing we notice here is that 
Joshua is not only clothed in filthy garments, but he is a, uh, a stick or a small branch that is smoldering. And there's a picture there of a judgment that's burning his feet. A judgment that he knows is coming. And in that state, that's when God plucks him and rules in an unbelievable way. You know, I love it when these Old Testament passages ring into the New Testament. Can you hear Ephesians chapter 2? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And not only were we dead in them, we were walking and we were following the prince and the power of the air. And we were living in complete disobedience to what God had called us to. We were living in the passions of our flesh and we were carrying out the desires of our flesh and our dead bodies and our deprived minds were doing exactly what we wanted to do, which was reject God and embrace sin. But what does Ephesians 2.8 say? But God. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace we have been saved. And this unbelievable ruling is so striking because of how Joshua is presented on his day in court. This word, filthy clothing, is actually very tame in the scriptures. Let me give you a literal picture of what filthy clothing means. It means to be clothed in vomit and poo. Does that sound remotely appealing? And yet, that's Joshua standing in court. And this is helpful for us because often when we're on this side of the wonder of the gospel and God has set his love and affection on us and saved us from uh, our sins, we sometimes become history revisionists in our salvation. And we either revise a version of us that was beneficial for God to save us because we really weren't that bad. And in that state of us being not too bad, well, God made a wise choice when he saved me. Or we land on the other side and we actually believe that the sin and the filth that we had prior to God saving him was too great and too extreme. And I'm too vile to be loved in this way. And you know we're fools in either sense? Because this tells us exactly how we stood before God when he chose us. We were clothed in filthy garments. Is there any way to make something made out of vomit and poo more appealing? Would you actually say, well, that suit is not as stinky, so I'll wear that one, because this one over here is just totally vile. No. That's the unbelievable ruling. 
that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were as had a stench that was as high as possible to heaven, God chose you. And in his choosing you, he shut the door on Satan's legitimate charges or accusations for your life. Because that's what God does. Now as we look at this, we look at this proclamation of not guilty immediately we move into this major problem. How do we, people clothed in filthy garments, stand before a holy and righteous God? And the answer to that is we don't. There's no way God can be in the presence of evil. So look in your passage in verse 4. Verses 4 and 5 are our angel of the Lord, who is our Savior, has some work to do, and he immediately gets to work. Notice how, as Joshua's defense attorney, the angel of the Lord orders something. He says, behold, or first he first orders, remove the filthy garments from him. And then he, speaking to Joshua, says, I have taken away your iniquity. And we know this is our Savior right here because there are no angels that can remove iniquity. It is only God that can do that. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, and the agent of the Lord, says, I remove your iniquity. And when he removed his iniquity and took those filthy garments and set them aside, look what he does at the end of verse 4. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And this word, pure vestments, is unbelievable. And before we get into what it is, let me paint you a picture of what it is not. I came from an automotive background, and I'm assuming most of you got here by cars and not bikes, so this one should carry over. When you take your car in for repair and something has broken, say the battery's bad, the brakes have worn out, you'll hear terminology like R&R. We're going to bring your car in, we're going to R&R the starter, which is just remove and replace. But that isn't a magical starter, and it's not a magical battery. You're going to wear it out again. And you're going to come back again and spend more money on your car, and you'll keep me in business for years. And in this scenario, it's not really regenerated to some glorious position. It's just kept running. And this is not that. When you look at that word, pure vestments, in your Bibles, this is the picture of going from filth to glory. It is astounding. And this noun 
is the, the verb and the noun here show that this is taking the ordinary and putting on the extraordinary. We see a picture of it in Luke chapter 15. Remember when the prodigal son returns? And what does the father do? He runs. And he drapes on his son who has been hanging out with the pigs in his filthy garments. And he puts on him a robe of royalty. We see it in Revelation chapter 7 when John is looking out and he sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And they're all standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Robes of royalty. We can hear this in Romans 8.30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a room full of glorious robes for all those who are in Christ right here this morning. But look at Zechariah's reaction. And this is another reason we can, we can determine that these robes are truly fit for royalty, that they are astounding. Because Zechariah all of a sudden participates in the vision. Look at verse 5. And I said, that's Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. He rightly recognizes that this robe of royalty is missing only one thing, a crown of glory. And this turban is exactly that. And you realize, brothers and sisters, that's coming for us that one day our robes will get a crown. 1 Corinthians 9 tells us, we do not run the race for a perishable wreath, but for an imperishable one. James tells us that the one who remains steadfast under trial will be blessed with the crown of life. And Jesus, speaking to the church at Smyrna in uh, Revelation, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then he charges the church at Philadelphia to hold fast to what you have that no one may seize your crown. And listen to Paul in his farewell address to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and therefore, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who loved his appearing. There we are, waiting for our crown. So this unbelievable ruling or this unbelievable choosing and this unbelievable gift of going from filth to royalty. I want to encourage you this morning, if you're struggling on how certain is this, does this change? Will God's mood 
shift tomorrow because you'll see me as I really am. Listen to Romans eleven twenty nine. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Never change. So Joshua has got this unbelievable ruling. Being pronounced not guilty when he obviously was guilty. Joshua has been received this unbelievable gift. He's had his filthy robes removed and he's had pure vestments laid around his shoulders. What happened to the filthy robes? If we worship a God that can nonchalantly overlook sin and just slough it off and say, ah, no big deal. You built up a lifetime of sinning against a holy God as a finite being, and I'm just okay with it. You know that, by very definition, would make him not God? Because if he is God, then he is just. And his justice never compromises. You know, we heard Jesse read Hebrews chapter 5. And Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, gives us the very definition of a high priest. The first thing we see about a high priest is that the high priest is chosen from among men by God. And appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. And in Hebrews 5.1, that the high priest specifically offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we very clearly have seen in Zechariah chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord, acting as an appointed um, commissioner for God, has given a glorious gift. He has taken away Zechariah's filthy robes and placed on his shoulders royal vestments. Where did the filthy garments go? Because the filthy garments are key. Because if your sin and my sin has never been dealt with, then we are on very unstable ground. And this last point, this unbelievable sacrifice, drives us to the very heart of what our high priest does. And we get it triggered in the text in verses 8 and verses 9. Anytime you see behold, particularly in the Old Testament, and right here you see it twice, at the end of verse 8, at the front end of verse 9, God is saying, he's grabbing us by the back of the head and saying, pay attention. Look at what I'm telling you right here. Behold, something astounding right here is about to be unpacked. And as we read this passage, it becomes clear that whatever it is that's astounding has got something to do with the engraving. 
But the more you search this passage, the more you'll realize what actually was engraved isn't mentioned. So how is this the sacrifice? Excellent question. So let's unpack this. Let's look at this passage for why what we know. The first thing we know about this passage, the engraving on the branch, is that it was inscribed onto a stone in verse 9. But if we follow back up in verse 8, we see that this stone is also referred to as my servant, the branch. So the, it cannot be an inanimate object. It's a person. It's my servant, the branch, also the stone. So that's the first two things we see. The third thing we see about this is that this one that is a person is also just like God. He's given seven eyes, the all-seeing one. And anytime we see seven in the Bible, that's a picture of perfection. And don't we see that in Jesus when he's dealing with people in the Gospels? And they never ask or say what they're thinking in their hearts out loud, but he deals with it. He's the all-seeing. He knows you better than you know yourself. And in this picture, this one with seven eyes is the one who sees everything. Here's an echo of it in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. As you come to Jesus, a living stone. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and he was precious. And look at the fourth thing that we see about this engraving from the text that we're in. This engraving happened on a single day. And on the day that this engraving took place, the sins of the people were removed. There's those filthy garments dealt with by Jesus himself. So here's your question. Can you think of a single day when your sins were removed from you and laid on God's servant, the branch? Because on that day, you were plucked from the fire and you were pronounced not guilty. And in this picture of not guilty, you inherited a righteousness, a righteous robes that were not your own. If we can identify that day, then it follows that we would be able to understand what was engraved. So what was that day? That was the day your Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. So you're in Zechariah. Just turn over to John chapter 20. Keep a finger in Zechariah. We'll come back here in a minute. Because we want to know, what is this engraving? What was engraved on this precious stone? that identifies everything that we've been talking about here. Pronounced not guilty, 
our filthy robes been removed and we have been blanketed with the righteous robes of Christ. Look at John chapter 20 and look at verse 24. John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, the all seeing Put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand here and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed yet you have not seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And this is not just Thomas. All of the disciples in Luke chapter 24 are sitting around and Jesus comes and says, Why are you troubled? And why do you have doubts that arise in your hearts? See my hands and see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see me, for I have a spirit that does not have flesh and bones as you have I have. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the branch that was hung on that tree for the sins of his people. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the all-seeing one. And on a single day, he removed your iniquity by paying the wages for your sin. And on that day, he clothed you with royal robes. And Isaiah 49.15 says that he engraved you on the palms of his hands. That, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate sacrifice of the high priest. Giving up his very life that you might have life and have it abundantly. And it was helpful for me as I worked on this passage to see my own thinking in this. You know, when God saved me, I couldn't tell you any of this. All I could tell you with clarity is that I was guilty and God said, you're not guilty. And I said, what? (laughs) And yet, God in his graciousness, as he grows us in this fundamental truth of the gospel, we start to... We see the wonder of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been laid on our account. And focusing on that and meditating on the wonder of who Jesus is and the righteousness that we now have because of him will then lead us to that question, where did my sin go? Your sin went as far away as the east is from the west because your righteous, loving Savior engraved it on his palms and paid the price in full. 
and you no longer have any of it on your account. Because he is your high priest. And as we finish up this passage in Zechariah chapter 3, we have to do the work that is the work of the uncomfortable part of Scripture. Wouldn't it be great if we could just go through the Scriptures and increase our understanding of who God is and get better knowledge of who He is and then not have to apply it? I could probably fill this room up three times. But I warned you at the front end that Zechariah puts the sovereignty of God right up against the responsibility of man. And it's right here in our passage. So let's look at verse 10 for a second. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, and by that definition of unbeliever, I mean one who simply does not believe. One who says that this is a bunch of nonsense. And I've got much better things to do with my life on a Sunday. I invite you today to come in your filthy garments to the foot of the tree that is the branch. He is offering you your court ruling today. He is offering you his gift today. He is offering you his sacrifice today. Come under the vine and under the fig tree. Because you will not enter into the kingdom clothed in any other garments than these garments. If you are not wearing the pure vestments that come from this one in Zechariah, you will be kicked out of the wedding feast. Matthew 22. Don't put this off. You may think that you do not need Jesus Christ as your high priest, that you can pay the price for your sin because you're not too bad. And you can cover the cost yourself. And you know what? You're right. You can absolutely cover the cost yourself. But you need to weigh the price. Because the price for sin in front of a holy infinite God is eternity in hell. And that will not be enough time to pay the full price. That will be your permanent residence. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake. If you will not bend your knee today to Jesus Christ, he will bend it for you when he comes back. There is only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And today, you can have the wages of your sin paid in by the branch from Zechariah chapter 2. You can have your unbelievable ruling, you can have your unbelievable gift, and you can have your unbelievable sacrifice. So now let's talk to 
believers. Go back in your brain to unbelievable, unbelievable as so great and so extreme, it's extraordinary. I cannot get my head around this. Look at verse 6 and 7. And here's this tension we talked about. Because Joshua has had all these things applied to his account, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assures Joshua. It's the beauty that we see throughout the scriptures. You know, we talked about Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy saved us. But then you move on to Ephesians chapter 4, and you're like, hey, this is getting a little uncomfortable. Where it says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And we consider the reality of this, this unbelievable ruling and this unbelievable gift and this unbelievable sacrifice, we can understand the charge that Joshua gets in verse 6. And listen to the charge. The first thing Joshua is charged with is, thus says the Lord of hosts. If you hear that word from the living God, thus says the Lord of hosts, what should be the very first thing you start to do? Listen. And how is it that we hear God? If you're hearing him any other way than through his word, you are not hearing God. He speaks to us through the scriptures. And when he says, thus says the Lord, let that be your trigger to say, well, what does he say? And then he moves right into, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Isn't obedience to Jesus obnoxious? That we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are called not to reflect a dead world, but an alive faith. And we're called to do it here as exiles waiting to go home. And obedience is never complicated, even though we love to make it complicated. Because we are our best advocates for excuses. Well, I don't go because of this. And I don't serve because of that. But obedience is not complicated. It's actually very simple. But it drives right to our flesh and we don't like it. But that's the charge that Joshua has given. And look at this also that he's this reward. So not only this call to listen, this call to be obedient, but this call of a reward. He's t- he tells Joshua, you will rule my house. You will have charge of my courts. You will have right of access to everything about me. We could say it this way. You will be in relationship with the living God. You want your soul satisfied here? You're not going to find it in anything this world has to offer. But you can have your soul satisfied beyond your wildest dreams in the person of Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe's comments were helpful for here for me. 
Because when Joshua received these unbelievable rulings, Jesus gave a charge to Joshua because cleansing and restoration always involve responsibility. Joshua wasn't put on probation. He was cleansed and restored to service. And as new creatures in Christ, you and I can serve in a way that we could never have served in the best day in our flesh. But because God has done the miracle, the transforming work of salvation in our lives, we are now restored to service. Because we are beings that were created to worship. We don't have any problem worshiping. Our issue falls apart when we worship the wrong things, which we excel at. If you need pointers on that, just see me later. (laughs) And in this picture, this restored to service, you have robes that aren't your own. You've been pronounced not guilty. And even the, the vilest sin that you can bring up in your mind prior to your salvation, God dealt with that. And it's been wiped clean. He says, I remember it no more. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we praise your name that you have done a work that we could not do. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who has authored our salvation and have perfected it to the end, and that you are bringing us closer and closer to glory. We thank you for our high priest, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has done. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would open up our minds and enlarge our hearts, that we would have the capacity to see who Jesus is together, and that all of us collectively would, over everything else in our life, would see our Savior for the love, for the depth that he is. We thank you, Lord, that you truly have brought us another day closer to going home. And we thank you that our ultimate residence will be worshiping you perfectly because of the perfect work that you have completed. We pray this in your Savior's name, Jesus Christ.